0: listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba.
1: The words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. To paraphrase Kate Bowler, I'm tired of people trying to Easter the crap out of Good Friday. Although I've been going to church my entire life, it wasn't until I came to St. Benedict's table that I began to truly celebrate Good Friday. Prior to that, I would typically attend church on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, but the services would have looked almost exactly the same. We'd quickly acknowledge that Jesus died and then spend most of our time celebrating the resurrection. People often try to Easter the crap out of my life, too. Recently, I had to update my banking information, and my response to almost every question was, oh, that's not true anymore. That's no longer my phone number. No, I don't work there anymore. Yes, I used to teach there, but I don't anymore. And on the drive home, I thought about just how many things have changed for me in the past two years, how many things I've lost, how many dreams have died. There have been Easter moments, too. There's been new life and new dreams and things so good, I sometimes have to pinch myself to confirm that they're true. But these things were born out of death. In order to get to the Easter moments, I had to fully live into the Good Friday ones, and the Holy Saturday ones too. And it's been hard for me, but it's also been difficult for the people around me. People who, with the best of intentions, have more often than not wanted to force my Good Friday into an Easter Sunday. And my choices boiled down to pretending it was Easter Sunday to make other people more comfortable or owning the truth that for me it was still Friday and that some days I wasn't sure Sunday would ever come. I don't know why things had to be so hard, but I do know that one of the key things that saved me in this season was the decision I made early on, to be honest, to resist the temptation to please people and live into a false Easter. The decision I made to say, this is hard. This is not what I wanted. This did not all work out for the best. I did not land on my feet. I smashed my face off the sidewalk, and it hurts. I needed to sit in a Good Friday space, to acknowledge the harsh reality of death, to feel the pain of it, to resist the temptation to pretend it was already Easter Sunday. And that saved me. And the people who were willing to sit with me at the foot of the cross, the people who didn't need to find a silver lining, the people who simply said, I see how hard this is, they saved me. There is no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. A couple of years ago, someone came early to our Good Friday service and with tears in their eyes said, I hope it's okay to be here when I am clearly not okay. And you bet it is. It is always okay. And on this day, we will acknowledge that truth in a particular way. Yesterday, after our Monday Thursday service, we stripped the church, removing linens and coverings and flowers and candles. The church is emptier. We are emptier. The story of Jesus' death is a powerful and important story that we should tell and retell again and again. Today is the day that we boldly and defiantly say, It is not Easter yet. It's okay not to be okay. On this day, we have full permission to hold the empty, to sit in the meaninglessness, and to acknowledge that not everything can be resolved. On this day, we have full permission to hold space for suffering, for grief, for death, and we call it good. And we do this in a world full of people who want to fill the empty, to find meaning however shallow in the meaninglessness, to mute suffering and grief and cloak death in euphemisms. Christ did not pass. We didn't lose him. Christ died. And it was good. It was horrible and painful, and it sent everyone around him into a tailspin, but it was also good, wasn't it? Reflecting on the horrors of World War II, German theologian Jurgen Moltmann wondered how theology could exist, how theology could speak in the face of such overwhelming suffering. He determined that modern theology must be developed in earshot of the dying Christ. Theology, which was really just our thoughts about God, must be developed in earshot of the dying Christ. What would we hear? What would we see if we resisted the temptation to skip straight to Easter and chose to sit quietly at the foot of the cross? We would hear the sounds of death by crucifixion, the pounding of the hammer, the crack of the wood, the grunting of the soldiers, the panting, the groans, the screams of three men as their flesh is pierced by nails. We would hear the conversation between Jesus and those two other men, short, raspy sentences as they all struggled to breathe. We would hear the soldiers and people in positions of leadership casting lots and mocking Jesus. And we would hear Jesus saying again and again and again, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. We would hear the women, loyal to the end, beating their breasts and wailing, their grief too great to be contained, And we would hear Jesus telling them to continue to weep, but not for him, for themselves and for their children, because even more difficult days are coming. And we might hear the wind move through the grass as death leads to silence. And we might begin to develop a greater humility for all the times that we have also known not what we do. And we might learn to hold space for those who weep, And we might condemn less and forgive more. We might learn to pay attention and say to each other, I see how hard this is. I can't change it, and I'm not going anywhere. We can sit in this Good Friday space as long as we need to. Dr. Sheila Cassidy drew attention to the human rights abuses of the Pinochet regime when she wrote about her own experiences of being imprisoned and tortured in Chile in the 1970s. Dr. Cassidy knows in her very bones what it is to suffer, what it is to hold space for the darkness, and the difficulty of death. She knows that it is only by fully living into Good Friday that we can ever hope to be an Easter people. So listen now to the words of her poem, Starting Over, Fighting Back. And so we must begin to live again, we of damaged bodies and assaulted mind, starting from scratch with the rubble of our lives and picking up the dust of the dreams once dreamt. And we stand there, naked in our vulnerability, proud of starting over, fighting back, but full of weak humility at the awesomeness of the task. We, without a future, safe, defined, delivered, now salute you, God, knowing that nothing is safe, secure, inviable here, except you. And even that eludes our minds at times. And we hate you, as we love you. And our anger is as strong as our pain, our grief is deep as oceans, and our need as great as mountains. So as we take our first few steps forward into the abyss of the future, we would pray for courage to become what we have not been before and accept it, and bravery to look deep within our souls to find new ways. We did not want it easy, God, but we did not contemplate that it would be quite this hard, this long, this lonely. So if we are to be turned inside out and upside down with even our pockets shaken just to check what's rattling and left behind, we pray that you will keep faith with us and we with you, holding our hands as we weep, giving us strength to continue and showing us beacons along the new way to becoming new. We are not fighting you, God, even if it feels like it, but we need your help and company as we struggle on, fighting back and starting over. May it be so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.
0: May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Cross your fingers behind your backs and imagine that today's reading of the Passion Narrative is all that you know of this story. You know nothing of a tomorrow, much less of a third day. On its own, Robert Capon observed the death of Jesus was an unreadable act written in black ink on black paper. So go deeper into your imagining and place yourself in the Jerusalem of 2,000 years ago. Were you a disciple, you'd be hiding, knowing only that the teacher had been executed and that all of the dreams and hopes of the last three years had come to nothing. Were you one of the women who'd braved the crowds and the soldiers to stand by and watch? You'd have this picture of your beloved Jesus slowly dying, etched forever on your mind's eye, and you'd be hoping only that come Sunday you'd be able to give his broken, tortured body the dignity of the ritual burial spices. Were you that centurion at the foot of the cross, you would now believe, declare that certainly this man was innocent, or, as recalled by other gospel writers, truly this was Son of God. And then you'd wonder at the horror that had just been done. Pilate looks up from his work as another one of the centurions enters to give him the news of the death, a nod, and little else. Or perhaps you're with the Sanhedrin, who put all of this in motion in the first place, seeing it as an unpleasant business, but necessary for the stability of the nation. Most of the citizens of Jerusalem would soon be going home to observe the Sabbath. And maybe if you were one of them, sometime over the evening, you'd catch yourself wondering what that had really been all about. Why did we get so wound up about the Galilean? Why did people seem so desperate to see him crucified? Black ink on black paper, unreadable that day. In her poem, Salvador Mundi, Via Crucis, Savior of the World, the Way of the Cross, Denise Levertov imagines the unreadability of it even in Jesus' own mind that day. Remember, both Matthew and Mark tell us that his dying words were My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Levertov writes, The painters, even the greatest, don't show how. In the midnight garden, or staggering uphill under the weight of the cross, he went through with even the human human longing to simply cease to not be Not torture of body, not the hideous betrayals humans commit, nor the faithless weakness of friends, and surely not the anticipation of death, not then in agony's grip, was incarnation's heaviest weight, but this sickened desire to renege to step back from what he who was God had promised himself and had entered time and flesh to enact. Sublime acceptance to be absolute had to have welled up from those depths where purpose drifted for mortal moments. Black ink, black paper. Now uncross your fingers You know that this is not the end of the story, but rather the beginning of a whole new beginning. Still, we might need to ask how this awful death marked that whole new beginning. And when we turn to the writers of the New Testament, to the theologians of the ancient church, we find threads of different, albeit overlapping, insights. Looking back to the Hebrew scriptures, some writers picked up on the idea of the scapegoat from Leviticus, in which a goat was ritually and symbolically burdened with the sins of the people and then driven away into the wilderness as a sign of forgiveness and atonement. Jesus, they said, did that for us on the cross. Others drew from imagery of the temple priesthood, saying Jesus was the once-for-all high priest and at the same time the offering, the sacrifice itself. The language of ransom was invoked, interpreting the death as ransoming us from the power of evil, of the Satan, or that by dying he defeated death, showing that death will never again have the final word, Some held up crucifixion as the greatest symbol of forgiveness. As Jesus looks at that mob from the cross and prays forgiveness over them all, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. All of that imagery, all of those threads are there in the New Testament. And here James Danaher remarks... We imagine that God is like us and can only love that which is beautiful and good. But God is not like us. God can love the unlovely. God even loves God's enemies. Unlike human beings who are, for the most part, incapable of forgiveness and demand payment for an offense by the guilty, God is capable of forgiveness, through which God makes payment in order to restore relationship with us. It is the entering into relationship with God that is important and not a correct theology about how that happens. This death that we remember today shows to us the urgency of God's desire to restore that right relationship with humanity, with us. And make no mistake, a real death it was. On that day, all they could see was written in black ink on black paper, unreadable and unfathomable. God incarnate, God with us lay dead in the ground. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca